Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Immunology and Beyond. Thanks for listening again. So today we have Dr. Sam Abkani. Um, he actually goes by Sam, and we'll refer to him as Sam in this interview. So Sam did his thesis project with Dr. Bramson, and Dr. Bramson um, really focuses on cancer immunotherapy, but specifically in T cells. So after he finished his thesis, then he moved on to Dr. Zozing's lab, where he started off as a master's student and transferred into his PhD. And now he's going to be talking about the next steps, things that he wants to do. So without further ado, we'd like to introduce you to Sam Afkami. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. To start things off, we would like to know kind of like what got you interested into following research in immunology? Yeah, so I did my undergrad here in bio. I had no research experience before I started. I took 3i. 3i was great. Yeah. And so during my year, uh, Mark McDermott was teaching it. Uh, so it was a really intense course. Uh, lots of theory to memorize and learn. but. The work was really cool. It's like the, I think it was the first time I had an undergraduate course where I was genuinely interested and wanted to pursue mm -hmm. it more. So I took 4i. Jonathan taught that, and he was really good. He was, you know, he's one of those guys who, when he was talking about the science, it really got me into it. So I applied to his lab for a thesis. I did a thesis work in his lab, and I loved the research. So it was from there I went on and I wanted to apply for graduate studies. So it was really honestly 3 and 4i that got me into immunology. If it wasn't for those courses, I would have never went down this field. Because my undergrad program didn't really guide me in terms of experience or exposure. Now there's a lot of new courses, that, like programs that cover immunology and have immunology so you get exposed to it. But I took it out of interest. Yeah, I feel like it was similar to like a lot of us here. We just kind of... The program wasn't guiding you towards it. It was something that was an elective, and then you just followed. Yeah, with it was it. a good elective. Martin was also teaching during that time too. They still had that rotating prof stuff. Mm -hmm. Ali actually was the first prof I had in that course, and I was trying to interact with him then, but I was I was like a minnow back then. <laughs> I didn't know anything. Right. So you worked in. You said Jonathan was Dr. Bramson. Yeah, yeah, I worked. So in you worked in his lab for a couple of years. Like, I worked in his lab for a year for a thesis project yeah. after four I. So I did five year undergrad. So after my fourth year, I did one year of the thesis. Mm -hmm. I really liked it, so I decided to go and apply for grad programs. It was hard to find a position, man. Really? Yeah. I had so many um, people I applied to that didn't hear back from, had got no's from, no funding. I kind of lucked out with so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so how come you made the transition then from um, working with Bramson to so? So the, really the transition was like sort of expanding what I did. I learned a lot in Jonathan's lab in terms of molecular biology and cloning. But at the time, I took a little break trying to think about what else I wanted to do in research-wise. I knew I wanted to do vaccine work. So I took a break. I worked at Starbucks. It was a good <laughs> life, man. Yeah. yeah. And then I decided to uh, look for some labs that did vaccine-related research. Yeah. And then you started with your master's in his lab? Yeah, I started with my master's. With, so I think it was in 2013 I wow. started. Mm -hmm as a summer student, and then in the September I started as a graduate student. So you didn't quite jump into the PhD right away, you kind of... No, no, no. I think Zoe's very more traditional, and back then there was no option for direct PhD. Uh, Looking back at it, I probably wouldn't have done the direct, because those two years let you learn a lot of skills, and they make you more competitive for graduate... Um, scholarships? Scholarships, exactly. Yeah. So... 
I guess you kind of went through both. What were the advantages and disadvantages of master's and PhD? Versus like doing a PhD directly? So yeah, or? like, and that too, like different things within a master's that were advantageous or... A lot of people, the biggest complaint I'll hear around is timing, right? Because you got two extra years. Mm -hmm. But to me, without those two years, I wouldn't have been able to get to the same point I am as today. So I wouldn't change it. Some people go into this just to get the degree so they can go on because certain jobs require that you have a certain level of postgraduate degree. Mm -hmm. For me, I could have, I was going to maybe potentially defend after my master's and look around, but I really loved the lab. I decided to stay on. A lot of job prospects these days do require the PhD. the PhD, and not only just the PhD, the skill sets. The, you know, the PhD is one thing, but what skills you've learned during your time as a PhD student mm -hmm. is huge, yeah. right? So I think I feel like if I only did four years, I wouldn't have gotten the same skill sets as I do now, where I had the two extra years to get experienced. I was wondering because you've uh, been here for six years. How big of a role has your supervisor? Like play in you staying transferring even right? Oh, it's huge! You've been absolutely. You sound like you are absolutely in love with your project, and that's terrific. Yeah. But the supervisor plays a huge role. Yeah, they both do. Projects are very important, but also you know your project and the freedom of your project is also guided by your supervisor. You know, if we're unhappy with what we're doing, we've been. I can easily talk with him, and we can plan new ideas, new project ideas. So he's been very open about that, and also with guiding. And so during my master's, there was a lot of like family health issues I had to deal with. And, you know, I had to take time off. And Zoe was super supportive during that time. It was like, take as much time as you want, do your thing, and come back whenever. And that in its own right really solidified also the fact that I already wanted to transfer. But when that came up and he was so sort of supportive and allowed me to do what I needed to do to fix the issues, um, I knew that. I couldn't give that up in terms of, it was a good aspect to have in a supervisor that they're so accepting of things that happen in our lives. Because I know I hear stories about, you know, some people are much more restrictive or they have more issues with their supervisor, but I felt like I had a good connection and that was it played a major role. Even to this day, right, being able to collaborate with other labs, you know, follow my own research ideas and stuff, he's been super supportive of it the entire way. And also providing the guidance too, right? It's easy to get lost in a certain idea, but he's always there to tell you like, okay, that's one idea, but consider this, consider these options. So it's very important to have that because he's the one who's the expert in the field. I was so naive when I started, even to this day, I feel naive in the field. There's so much more left that I don't know that I wish I knew. And I go to him still for ideas and questions and what his thoughts are. But it's less of me being like a tiny little guy who's scared of talking to Zoe, more so me sitting down. Nowadays, I feel like I can have a real scientific conversation with them. And when do you think you saw this change? Was it like right after the funding or was it just no, more no, to your senior, senior days? Into the senior days. Like you'll get to a point where like, you know, your supervisor can't keep up with all the literature. Mm -hmm. So I would get to a point where he'll ask you to teach him certain things in the field. And then from there, you start having a back and forth in conversation. You start learning the field more, learning beyond what your supervisor knows specific to your field, and then learning more about what's going on in the other fields and stuff. So then you, you know, it's all based on your knowledge base. So having now finished your PhD, what are some things that you feel that like 
you your PhD gave you you couldn't have gotten anywhere else besides the publications besides the knowledge in TV like what are the skills that you feel oh, like oh man yeah that's a good question man a lot um, biggest one being presentation skills oral speaking writing skills Zoe's a major advocate for writing like sometimes he sits me down and teaches me writing lessons and stuff I'm like I don't understand this stuff <laughs> does he send you like grammar like yeah. oh, what kind of writing like how yeah. to write oh, yeah, yeah, me out the other day he like pulls me up to his chair he's like you have too many like connecting verbs or something I'm like I don't know what those are <laughs> <laughs> yeah so lots of writing skills oral presentation skills um being able to collaborate and interact with other people. A lot of it is a maturity. Like, I matured a lot from when I first started to where I am today. Not so much maybe from the scientific side, but maturing as a person and becoming more aware of how things really work. And, you know, you leave that naive state. And you start to become more exposed and realize what's going on. So it was a major change. So I guess to follow up on that, we all know you give really great presentations. I appreciate the comments. <laughs> um, how did you kind of develop those skills? Zoe forced us to present basically every couple of weeks we present in lab meeting. And the presentations are like, like super formal, like full background, introduction, presentation. And I don't, I don't I did a lot of readings online and just... I just liked working in PowerPoint and stuff and having like animations and things like that because I feel like it's a great way it's a great way to sell your science to work thing and then all the courses we have to take in the med sci program like advanced immuno 716 715 uh, they force us to present so it gave me so many opportunities to tinker with my sort of basic knowledge of PowerPoint and stuff and take the feedback from people I present to you know, see what people think. Are they receptive to certain types of animations or certain, you know, presentation styles or fonts or structures? And I fine-tune it based on what I get from the audience and to make a different presentation. Like, the presentations I first started in my master's are nothing in terms of, like, the components as they were, say, during my one-hour whip presentation. So a lot of it came from practice and being forced to present. What's the one thing that advice that you give to somebody that's looking to do a scientific presentation? Like, what do you think is the most important thing to keep in mind? A lot of times when I, I'm, you know, people come to me from time to time to look over their presentations and to present to me just for feedback. And the biggest thing is people get lost in who their audience is. When I develop, when you or any of us develop a presentation, you got to realize who are you presenting to and is your presentation tailored to that audience? Like the WIP seminars are presenting to a general community of scientists, but they don't know the ins and outs of your project or of the field or of the disease you're doing or whatever. So you have to be able to develop your background in a way that the audience understands what you're doing and they follow along. Because as soon as you lose the audience, you're done for, man. People are on Twitter, on Instagram and stuff, passed out. You've got to keep your audience interested involved and one of the ways is like speaking obviously is one way you know loud clear but your slides have to complement what you're presenting right a lot of people put texts have things come in as blocks but if you can work work your presentation out in a way that's conceptual that's very layman that's easy to understand that's visual people understand visual a lot more you know sometimes a lot of people show a lot of data you've got to tailor to your presentation to your to your audience like I don't present a lot of data because 
if you present data, you have to present what you're showing, what the rationale is. It's a lot easier to provide conceptual ideas and rationale of what you're doing. Because if people can't see that connection to the rationale, if they can't see a connection of why you're doing something, then you're going to lose them. It's not worth it. Then you're not going to have an effective presentation. What were your toughest moments during your PhD, and what were your best moments? Maybe you didn't have any tough moments, but... I think I have, no, everyone has tough moments. A lot of the tough moments comes from my project was how everything took so long, and, you know, People around me are getting data left and right and developing their stories, but for me, I have to wait so many months to figure out what's going on. You don't know if it's going to work or not. So you, sometimes you sit there, you're like, dude, what am I doing? Like, like why is this taking so long? Like, what, what can I do to change that? Th those parts were tough. Um, comps was tough, but it was a good experience, right? The whole exercise of writing and stuff. Zoe forced a lot of writing exercises on us. I found those tough being able to write properly and stuff, but you come out better for it in the end. Uh, so those parts were tough in terms of the research side. And I guess the best parts really has been the people I've been able to work with. That's been the biggest one. So like working in level three, you know, having a good connection of level three workers with you, like Rocky and Mike and the people like Anna in our lab and stuff, uh, they've been sort of the foundation to all the research I've been able to do. And having that core group of people that you can rely on, they can rely on you, and developing those sort of friendships or co-worker relationships has been the most the best part about all this. Okay. Just because I feel like we're going to go back and forth on it, I think yeah. it'll be really good if you can just give us like a little bit of a synopsis or like an overview of what you started with, like what was your research question, and then kind of like your journey through your PhD, like what were the... What was your main hypothesis? What were the findings that you had? And then what was like the final results that you ended up with? Yeah. You know, it changed a lot over the years. I can When imagine. I first started, um, it was first learning the basics, learning the techniques. Uh, we had this chimp factor. So the whole reason we use different serotypes or different species viruses is to overcome pre-existing immunity. So all mm -hmm. of us are exposed to a lot of common human adenoviruses less exposed to non-human adenoviruses like chimp factors. So the whole purpose of this chimp vaccine was to use it as a way of overcoming human pre-existing AD5 immunity because that's one of the reasons why AD5 vectors perform less efficaciously than others. So the whole point was like, okay, we have this chimp vector, let's test it. So the question that I was asked to look under is like, if you have human immunity against AD5, using AD chimp, can you overcome it? So it's a pretty straightforward question. You know, you plug in one exposure, you plug in the vaccine, and then you compare it to see if there's any weird responses or dampening of immune responses. Uh, so that's what I did for a year. And eventually, you know, my research project, the experiments were so long, it were like five, six months of timings to develop the models that we scrapped it, used the data to wrap up the original paper with the chimp vector, got that out, and then I started my own project. So my project was assessing vaccines for their therapy, so therapeutic purposes. So instead of giving a vaccine to stop infection, can you give a vaccine to help with treatment? Mm -hmm. So the, the thing with TB, uh, if I backtrack a bit, is that it's very hard to prevent infection. You know, lots of vaccines have come in and failed uh, because it's just very difficult to develop a platform to stop infection because we really don't know what to go after. And it's still not known. There's been a lot of recent trials that show a lot of promise but there's still no direct correlate. So we went from it on a flip side. So we know infection's a major issue, 
but what about people who are in antibiotics and stop taking their antibiotics? So a big issue right now is people who fail to stick to their therapies. When you fail to stick to your therapy, a lot of people rebound an illness, and it's a major pool of transmission to people in communities and outside of the communities. So if we can develop a therapeutic that can shorten antibiotic therapy or enhance people sticking to their antibiotics, it's another way of combating the disease. So rather than stopping infection, developing a strategy to allow people to be cured faster and stop transmission between people. So there's been a lot, there was a lot of work in the field at that time. There's a lot of drugs out there that help shorten the duration of therapies, but there's a lot of side effects and issues with that. So we thought, uh, why don't we go into it with a vaccine and use a vaccine to address that question? So that's where about a year into my master's is when my main project's research question came to fruition, which was testing our vaccines as a therapeutic. So, I don't know, we were lucky enough to work the first few pilot studies. The only issue really with, with these projects is they're timely. So, from vaccine to infection to readout is about four to five months per experiment. So, we had one shot, somehow it worked. And based on that pilot study, it essentially developed into my PhD project, was assessing the vaccine, characterizing it, why do we see what it does and whatnot. Yeah. Nice. Uh, that was only, so like, you know, these experiments were so widely timed apart that it gave us time to ask other questions. So that was like, it wasn't the main project, it was my main project, but I had to do other stuff in between. Yeah, do you find like if for people that have longer projects, like some people that are looking at aging, or for in your case where it takes like six months to get data, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming it's an in vivo study. Yeah, you, so, you have to find something to fill that Yeah, time. so like when we were doing our um, antibiotic therapies for TB, it's nine months. So from vaccination to infection to the end of treatment was almost a year per experiment. So you've got to do something in between, man. You could sit there and do nothing, but you've got to be productive. So um, I went on, I took up additional questions based on the vaccine. So we know we had our vaccine construct. I took the knowledge that I had about molecular cloning and molecular biology, and I deconstructed the vaccine and reconstructed it with different antigens or different whatever's inside, and went and tested that vaccine out. Mm -hmm. And then on the side, we were collaborating with, engineer, with the Department of Engineering to test vaccine stabilization platforms. So like ways of taking these liquid vaccines that require you to freeze them at like minus 80? And how do we abolish the requirement of storage? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I took on a handful of side projects while this one was ongoing. Yeah, yeah I assume that's a big problem for vaccines, especially for therapeutic, if you want to do TV because you want to get to places where the temperature is exactly. a huge issue. Yeah. So we got lucky and we worked with the Department of Engineering. They approached us, uh, Michael Thompson's lab mm -hmm. in chemical biology and Emily Cranston. So they both do polymer nanotech, nanobiology stuff. And uh, one of their grad students, Dan LeClaire, um, he came up with these ideas of taking our viruses and not lyophilizing them, it's called a spray drying, where you take the virus in a liquid and you mix it with like sugars or um, stabilizing agents. And if you flash evaporate it, you can actually encapsulate your virus within sugars and these sugars can be stable at room temperature for upwards of three, four, five months. So they approached us to test it in murine settings or in mouse settings by using our vaccines. I guess one of the questions that we 
are wondering, you know, you did your thesis, then you did your master's, which was in opposite labs, but then once you were in So's lab, you did your PhD. Did the project that you had from the beginning to your at the end of your six years, did it change? How did it develop? So How yeah, did it the grow? thesis I did, the cancer-related research with Jonathan. Yes. But then when I went to Zoe's lab, I started right away with the vaccine-related work. Okay. And essentially throughout the six years, it was taking that vaccine, changing it, improving it, modifying it. So everything was around the same umbrella question Got it. of TB vaccine research and TB vaccine design. So did the research questions change? Absolutely, they always do. Yes. Uh, but using similar platforms. How far along was vaccine development when you started? And like, what kind of were the hurdles that you had to I, go I got very lucky when I started. So the vaccine was already developed. Yeah. It's like a chimp adenovirus vaccine. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was already developed and the paper was already basically halfway done. I got in at a good time where I could, well, a lot of it is timing. I got in at a good time and they needed someone who knew molecular biology to do a couple of assays here and there. So I was lucky enough to help wrap that paper up. And then using that vaccine, we use it to address some additional questions that became my primary project. But you know, I did that for a year and the project went nowhere. Essentially the data got cannibalized with other projects. So then we took that same vaccine platform and asked a different question. Mm -hmm. And then that's where my research really started. Essentially the first year of my master's was taking what I did having a data cannibalized, and then starting a new project. Okay. So I guess on that too, I guess the way that vaccine research kind of goes and how that evolved over the six years, was that difficult to kind of stay in trend with that? In the field? Yeah, so well, based uh, on your research. Yeah, it's very true. So the work we were doing was novel enough that not a lot of other labs were working on it using a chimp-based vector. Now a lot of labs are using it, so we had to change our approach, and we were we were approaching the use of vaccines more or less than like the prophylactic side, trying to get more as a therapy. So that's where we carved out our niche, and that's what was really the duration of my PhD was assessing these vaccines for their therapeutic efficacies rather than prophylactic. So yeah, we did we were able to carve out our own, but it wasn't from scratch, right? There were ideas out there, lots of theories based on immune therapies for TB using vaccines, we just decided to apply our platforms to that. So you were involved in the whole clinical trial side of things during your PhD for that vaccine? Uh, so we have, two, we have two sets. One of them is an AD5 vaccine, which is a human adenovirus. Mm -hmm. I wasn't involved in the first phase clinical trial. That's when I first started in the lab. A lot of the lab's research still uses that ADHU5 vaccine. And there's a trial going on now. So now the, tri the trial is using the vaccine as an aerosol. So instead of intramuscular administration, we're comparing it to direct inhalation of the vaccine. So that's a phase one as well, uh, but it's a route-dependent question. That's what I'm involved with now. So we have two sides. I have the preclinical work with our chimp vectors, mm -hmm. and then we have the clinical side with the human adenovirus vectors. Mm -hmm. Is it a big jump? Because I know some labs it struggle sometimes going from preclinical to clinical trials. Mm. Was that something that you saw was very difficult, or I'm sure that this was all on Zoe's side, right? Zoe's side. So Zoe and Fiona, who's the doctor, the, I think she's head of infectious diseases at Mac. Yeah. Uh, her and Zoe were the ones that essentially did all the paperwork and all the clinic preclinical. But if based on what Zoe's told us, there's a lot of preclinical work. Yeah. That goes into it before you can even apply for clinical trials, especially for aerosol trials, for aerosol delivery. 
Um, Ad5 has been widely used, so it's a bit easier to get approval. But to try different um, adenoviruses, there might be additional. Because it's an aerosol is a problem. Is it just because you're aerosolizing like viral particles and then people just... So you're being, instead of being exposed as an intramuscular vac injection, yeah. you're breathing it into the lungs. So yeah. there's an added safety concern about potential immune pathologies. Okay. But all that was ruled out through all the different animal models that were used to test it. Okay. Uh, and I guess just going into it now, now that you're in clinical trials, how the, how different is that from your pre-clinical experience? The biggest one is how you follow SOPs and how you do things, right? You know, sometimes with your mouse stuff, like mouse experiments, you might change something here or change something there, tinker around. With the clinical work, it was quite a big shock in terms of how exact you have to be with every protocol. So you can't do like little minor changes. Like for one of our protocols, you know, you have to vortex for X amount of seconds. And then you have to make sure that's recorded down and everything's recorded properly. Any deviations have to be recorded down because uh, at the end of the day, it, everything has to be done the same way. So you can truly compare sample or samples between people. And the other thing is we get one sample. Like, our air, like we do airway uh, lavages on these people on these participants mm -hmm. and then the lavage samples you know per visit that we get a lavage sample you get one so if you mess it up that's straight to the garbage can got it so you guys are very much involved like preparing the vaccine for the delivery for them or like how does it work is there a so the vaccine that we use for our preclinical is made in the lab yeah it's purified in the lab it's tested in the lab for it to be used in the clinic it has to come from a glp or gmp facility yes God, I don't remember which one. GMP. EGMP, that's the one. So that's prepared here, actually, uh, in the vector lab. So the vector lab prepares GMP-grade vaccine, and then the vaccine is prepared in the GMP facility with an oversight from someone from our lab. That vaccine is given to one of the chief doctors, a respirologist. It's all delivered on the clinical side, and then they yeah. do all the monitoring. So before delivering, they check for respiratory function, after delivery, the test for respiratory function. There's a lot of checkpoints for uh, the safety of the trial participants. Got it. So is there any type of education for patients between what they're receiving? Like, oh, absolutely, yeah so. yeah. so there's a website that provides all the information. There's a pre-screening that's done. So they meet with the doctors, the trial coordinators. They tell you all the information regarding what the vaccine is what's known in the clinic, what the adverse effects are, what tests are gonna be done, what samples are gonna be, all those are covered. There has to be absolute transparency for these trials. So when you started in the field of tuberculosis or mm -hmm. the treatment of it, was six years ago, right? How have you seen the field change in those six years that you've been part of it? And where do you see it heading in the future? There's been a lot of changes. So six years ago, the only trial to test the new vaccine didn't work. And that was a phase 2B trial. Uh, ever since then, there's been a lot of candidates that have been popping up now, even in the clinic, uh, with a recent one from, I believe, GSK, showing upwards of 50% efficacy in people who've already have infection or preventing like reinfection or um, reactivation. So that was unprecedented in the field. And then recent, a recent study came out showing that changing the route of vaccination has a huge impact on getting TB in monkey models. So this is a huge advancement. 
from you know nothing was really working the protection's been pretty subpar to a lot of candidates now popping up that show pretty impressive efficacy so you know there's still no correlate of protection you know i've been doing that for six seven years now nothing's come up that people say yes this is what we need to protect but there are trials and preclinical work that actually show that yeah you can actually prevent infection that's from the vaccine side the drug side has seen major improvements in new drugs that allow for shorter therapies better efficacy better coverage so it's been a huge advancement in the field lots of money in it has like i know the growing fear now is antibiotic resistance and i know for tv that also plays a role yeah, big is that something because you mentioned the compound side is that something that you see has had to like do you see that being affected by it in the future and then yes. vaccine maybe overtaking the that use? was the biggest rationale for using vaccine immune therapies is that you don't you don't breed antibiotic resistance so the latest drugs that have come out for tb that have shown really good efficacy there's already been cases of antibiotic resistance against those so aside from compound-based therapies vaccines i think are probably the best go-to's for overcoming it. You switched, you've been working in immunology in your thesis and now during your PhD you worked in immunology, but it's been different parts of immunology. Now that you're a postdoc, you're currently still working in clinical trials within you know, the field of uh, TB. Is it now, when you're looking to the future, do you see yourself diving deeper into the field in your next of position tuberculosis of tuberculosis research, research or yeah, do you see yourself changing gears? That's hard to say. I've loved the work I've done so far. And although I'm doing the clinical work, I have a lot of preclinical projects on the side. And, you know, I like the preclinical work. I think it's really translational. You learn a lot of important skills. But my passion still lies in the preclinical work that I'm doing. So um, we've seen a lot of advancements with our new vaccine constructs the way that we address these vaccines and how we assess their protective efficacy. And I've loved the research. I don't know if I'm gonna continue with TV research after I'm done here, but I know I wanna continue with research. That's one thing I'm for sure of. I wanna still do vaccine-related wet lab hands-on work. Uh, whether it's TB or not, I'm not sure. But for the, for the meantime, I'm, I'm loving the work I'm doing. That's good. And do you see yourself staying within academic research, or are you also considering more of an industry-based Yes, options? I don't think I'm going to be sticking with academic research. I'm more so looking either through industrial or governmental body-based research. Uh, more so because I think even though you're less, you're more restricted in terms of what you have to follow for guidelines. Um, you know, there's a lot more freedom in other ways, and accessibility to tools and reagents and you know, collaborative potentials. I think there's a less, the bar is much higher, but there are a bit more restrictions on what you can follow. It's not as free form here as we have it in academia. Just to end it off, looking back at yourself, you know, fourth year, um, starting your, your, your thesis, what's one piece of advice you would tell yourself coming, looking back at your trajectory? Yeah, you can't waste time, man. Because there's, there's been many months, um, I look back that, I would just sit around in a lab and spin in my chair, basically, and you know, think about what I want to do. It was a waste of time, because I got comfy. You can't get com too comfy, or you're going to get lazy, and you're not going to finish stuff. And looking back, there were big blocks of time that I would waste in the lab, right? You get a limited amount of time in the lab, inside the lab. You've got to balance your life, right? 
but at the same time, you can't just be chilling for blocks of time. You gotta be thinking what your next step is, what you wanna do, because you're not gonna get these months or years back. And there are months, blocks of months that I think I wasted, that I wish I didn't, but you learn that, you know, I realized that I did that, so going forward, I know that I have to utilize my time properly. Because it's easy just to get comfy. The worst thing you can do is just get comfy and start chilling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, okay. Well, thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to this episode of Immunology and Beyond. And please leave us a tweet or a comment at Immuno and Beyond, our Twitter account. If you guys have any other suggestions for guests, leave us a comment and uh, stay tuned for our next episode. And this was your weekly dose of immunology.